following podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. The title of my message this morning is, Do Not Be Overcome by Evil, But Overcome Evil with Good. My subtitle is, Grow a Tough Skin and Turn the Other Cheek in the Face of Persecution. So we're going to be talking about oxymorons today, right? So my opening question to you, and I want you to raise your hand. Okay, so this question is, do you want to be a true disciple of Christ? If so, raise your hand. Okay, the whole room of you have raised your hands because you are saying, I truly want to be a disciple of Christ. I think we would all agree that we live in times when it seems that evil is on the rise. Would you agree with that? It seems as if we've become more of a hostile nation. People seem to be more angrier and more vengeful than ever before. We're going to revisit that a little bit later. What prompted my message this morning is a combination of two different lessons, one that I did with my Saturday night kids and one that I have done with my Sunday morning young people. These two lessons spoke to me specifically and brought a conviction of my propensity toward an attitude that should not be in a heart of someone who claims to be or wants to be a disciple of Christ. It challenges me every day to choose to change that attitude and that mindset. It has encouraged me to want to respond in obedience to God's word, realizing that I cannot in any way do this on my own. It is only going to be the power of the Holy Spirit within me to be able to do what I'm going to ask you guys to do. Saturday night's injunction with my Sunday school class, we've been looking at different animals, a particular character trait of that animal. Then we would look at a biblical character or a story that displays that animal. And then we would talk about how we need to apply that particular characteristic to our own life. It's been a great study. I have actually loved it so much. Well, a few weeks ago, we talked about a very large reptile known for their large tail, their very big mouth, and their very sharp teeth. But the main physical feature we focused on was their tough skin. They are watertight, and they can stay underwater for an hour at a time. Their tough skin protects them from the elements and predators, and they are considered to be the apex of the animal kingdom. There is no other animal that can penetrate their tough skin. However, the predator that can hunt and kill them 
by squeezing the life out of them is a Burmese python or an anaconda. So of course, you know I'm talking about an, an alligator. And this was one of, out of all of the previous animals that we talked about, this one has brought the most conviction to my life. The world we live in today requires that we be tough skinned. And we live in a time when there's no lack of predators with evil mindsets and agendas that exist to silence Jesus' followers and eliminate the gospel message. The church has always, since its existence, been under attack. But we are seeing an intolerance for the truth intensify in our nation. Would you agree? If you haven't experienced persecution yet, you will. It will continue to increase the longer the Lord tarries and the longer that you are alive on earth. Expect it. Be ready for it. And choose to handle it the way Jesus tells us to. It's absolutely essential that you and I develop and grow a tough skin. Back in Exodus chapter 20, God's law is given through the Ten Commandments. And it was given to the newly established nation of Israel. In chapter 21, we see the law of Moses given that addresses many different facets of their life. And in that chapter, its um, laws are given regarding servants, violence, and animals. Specifically, verses 23 through 25, we read, this is according to the NLT version, but if there is further injury, the punishment must match the injury. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. What do you say? Yeah. Is that what you say? Yeah. <laughs> we tend to like those verses because we are about paybacks getting even, and avenging. And you guys, I don't know about you, but it happens to just be in my DNA. I am deeply troubled how I experience this in my own life and how I hear and see it in the lives of God's people on a daily basis. Our tendency when we've been wronged or harmed in some way physically or hurt by someone's words or someone we love has been wronged, there is something that rises up within us, right? To retaliate, to be revengeful. We must protect or, and defend ourselves. It's built in us. So what do we do naturally when those things occur? I'm going to give you a few examples and you're going to think of some of your own as well. I watch this with my grandkids. One sibling hits the other, and what does the other sibling do? Hit back. When I would get in fights with my sister, and she would call me a name, I would try to find a worse name to call her back. And we would continue to banter back and forth until we couldn't come up with any more demeaning names to call each other. One day, 
I chose to avenge her because she took my socks. And so I chased her around our backyard with butcher knives. When I was in middle school, we lived in California, and there was a girl that didn't like me. You can understand why. <laughs> and treated me as though she was better than I was and acted accordingly. So I was going to show her. So I took insulation, and I tore it up into little pieces, and I took and threw it all over her front yard. Now, if you've ever lived in California, you know that every morning dew comes up. And that insulation stuck like glue all over her yard, her lawn. Now, I probably didn't upset her, but I'm sure I did her parents. Now, I, I want you to understand that this was pre-Jesus days, okay? <laughs> I want you to understand that. <laughs> Here are a few other examples that maybe you can relate to. How about when, for those of you who are married, your spouse makes you mad or hurts you, and so you're going to pay them back by going silent, sometimes for more than a day, or you're going to withhold certain benefits from them. How about when you're driving in traffic and someone pulls out in front of you and you lay on the horn, you ride their bumper, and then when you get a chance to pass them, you give them the death stare and scream at them through a closed window. <laughs> or how about when a coworker takes the credit for an idea that you came up with and they receive praise from your boss and a promotion. So what do you do? You slander them to another coworker behind their back and create disunity. The list goes on and on. I'm going to give you a really extreme one that just happened a couple of, or I guess last week, in Cleveland, Texas. And many of you may have heard this story. A man who, I'm going to probably say this wrong, so you guys need to correct me. An Air 15 rifle. AR, AR-15 rifle, okay? So he's in his yard, and he's firing his rifle off at night. His neighbors go um, next door to him and ask him if he would please stop firing his rifle because their baby can't sleep. And basically, he says, you can't tell me what to do in my own yard. So what does he do? He goes over to their house opens fire on their family and kills five of them, one of them being a nine-year-old boy. That is an extreme example of revenge, but this is the day that we live in, right? I find it interesting how much I want justice to be served to those who have wronged me or someone else. But we want grace when it comes to us having wronged someone else. I don't know how many of you have seen this movie. It came out in 1987. Some of you weren't even born yet. Um, and it's called The Princess Bride. Anyone familiar with that? 
Okay, I never watched the movie personally, but I read about it. And I'm going to share it with you because it illustrates the point that I'm wanting to make today. It's a funny spin on fairy tales that follows a tale of true love that was lost, found, lost again, and found again. Within this, that story are a few other stories, including the tale of a young swordsman who is looking for revenge. The young swordsman's father was a great sword maker who was commissioned by a six-figured man whose name was Count Rugen, to craft him a sword. When the Count returns to collect his sword, he offers the boy's father half the price of what they had agreed on. The boy's father refuses, and the six-fingered man stabs him in the heart. Discovering the death of his father, the boy went after this six-fingered man, challenged him to a duel. He failed and Count Rugen marked him with a scar on each cheek. After that, the boy dedicated his whole life to getting revenge. He eventually became a master swordsman himself and traveled the world looking for the six-fingered man so that one day he could say, which is one of the most famous lines in the movie, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, Prepare to die. See, y'all know it. <laughs> so in that scene, when he has a duel, he's finally caught up with the count. He gets stabbed by the count. It looks like he's going to die, but he rises back up, and he keeps saying that line over and over again. He finally knocks the sword out of Count Rugen's hand, pins him up against the wall, holds his um, sword, to his neck, and he says, you offer me money. And the count says, yes. You offer me power, yes. He goes, whatever you want. I'll give you whatever you want, everything I have, and more. What do you want? And then Inigo says, I want my father back. And then he plunges his sword into his stomach, and he dies. Great movie, right? <laughs> Like I said, I didn't see, but I did watch that clip <laughs> for this reason. <laughs> so Inigo's whole life was driven by what? By revenge. But after he achieved his revenge, did it bring his father back? No. It was a wasted life, and he never really accomplished what he wanted, what he hoped for, that his father would return. You might be thinking that he had every right to avenge his father. Justice needed to be served. And as we hear this story, there is something about revenge that appeals to all of us. Right? Up to this point, you've probably been with me. You just think this message is good. I'm aligning with it. But as I continue, you're going to have a harder time accepting what will be said next, and it will not be my words. Jesus' words and his life were in direct contrast to the times in which he lived and the world in which we live today. Jesus pretty much turned the teachings of the religious leaders of that day who dedicated themselves to the keeping of the letter 
of the law versus the spirit of the law upside down. He brought a different way of seeing and responding to his enemies. He continually taught and modeled to his disciples to do the exact opposite of what they were used to doing, what the natural reaction of their flesh wanted to do. The question I asked you was, do you want to truly be his disciple? You raised your hand. Jesus said in Luke 14, 27, Who does not, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus' most famous and most preached sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, or better known as the Beatitudes, where he says, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed um, are the meek. And if you go down to verses 10 and 12, look at those with me. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. What are we supposed to do? Take revenge? What, what does verse 12 say? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then go down to verses 38 and 42, and we see what Jesus says about revenge. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Did we not read that in Exodus chapter 21? But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Is that different than how our human nature is? Yes. You might, as we read those, started feeling a little bit of resistance to that. Anybody feel that when we were reading that? All right, you can turn with me if you want to, to Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, and this is what the Apostle Paul wrote. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. But rather, give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your friend, what's it say there? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. 
do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do you like the words of Paul? If anybody knew about mistreatment, harsh words, physical abuse, being falsely accused, treated unfairly, and eventually executed for doing nothing wrong but doing everything right, it was Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Yet they are the ones that are speaking these words. Who are they speaking these words to? Non-believers? No. They are speaking to believers, to the disciples, to us. All of Jesus and Paul's disciples faced harsh persecution and many of them eventually execution. They had every right to avenge those who persecuted them so severely, but they didn't. Jesus told his disciples then, and he tells his disciples today, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And if we're not experiencing some form of persecution, we may not be living as his disciple. This takes us to the second lesson that I mentioned earlier with my Sunday morning young people. I had asked them what they would like to learn about, talk about. And they said, discipleship. Isn't that awesome? I love my kids. I'm so sad they're graduating and leaving me. I don't like people leaving. You didn't know that, right? But I'm excited for what God has for them because he has great plans for them. And they're great young people. So with that, it led us to the book of Acts. And we have covered chapters 1 through 7. The book of Acts gives example after example of the early followers of the way for the reason not to be overcome by evil and to overcome evil with good. It speaks of why we need to grow a tough skin, turn the other cheek in the face of persecution. All of you know the story of the book of Acts, right? Awesome, awesome book that lets us know that when Jesus ascended in chapter 1 and leaves those disciples left alone, and they're like, oh, my gosh, where are you going? What are you doing? And what does he tell them to do? In fact, my class can probably repeat this. He tells them, you guys, okay, I'm leaving you, and you got to go to Jerusalem, and you got to wait. you got to wait. Okay, so they see him go, and he says, just as you see me go, same way I'm going to come back. So what do they do? They go to Jerusalem. 120 of them are in the upper room, and they're waiting for the promise. He says, I'm going to give you a promise to fulfill the purpose that I have for you. What's the purpose? The mission to spread the gospel throughout the world, right? So they're sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit blasts through that room. 
right? Like a mighty rushing wind and the tongues of fire come upon their heads and they begin speaking in other tongues, speaking in other languages. But remember, this all happens because Pentecost has happened, right? 50 days after Jesus is resurrected. Pentecost, the feast of first fruits, Shavuot. Everybody from all the surrounding regions have come to Jerusalem to celebrate and to worship and to give thanks for the first fruits of their harvest. So the place is jam-packed with people, right? So all of these 120, they have these flames of fire on their heads, and they begin speaking in all these different languages to all these people that are there. And you know what they're talking about? They're talking about the wonders of God. And they're astonished and they're perplexed. Okay, and then some of them are accusing them of what? That they're drunk. Peter stands up and he says, no, 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 no. It's only 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's not what's going on here. The Holy Spirit has come. And then Peter gives his greatest sermon ever, right? His greatest sermon ever. He speaks out of the book of Joel. He talks about David. And then he ends that one and he says, repent and be baptized. 3,000 people are saved on that day. And boom, the church is born. And then they have to give a model for the church, right? In verses 42 through 46, it says, this is what the church looks like. This is how it's got to be. Not only then, you guys, but this is how the church needs to be today. And if the church isn't following that model, we are not in obedience to what God says we should look like and be. That's why we always got to be praying for Wellspring, that we stay aligned to the word of God and that we stay aligned to verses 42 through 46. Now, moving along, chapter 3, the disciples start to make waves. And they come across a man who's been sitting at the portico of Solomon for 40 years, lame. And he's begging for money, right? So here come Peter and John. They don't give him what he asks for. They don't give him money. But they give him what he needs. They give him what they have. And they give him Jesus. And what does he do? He gets up, and he's walking, and he's leaping, and he's praising God, and everybody around him are praising God, too. But guess who gets mad? The religious leaders. They get mad, right, because they don't like what's happening. So what do they do? They take them into custody. If you want to follow along with me in, in Acts chapter 4, they get upset. They take and they arrest um, the apostles for one day. Then they let them go. But while they're in prison or while they're in custody, if you look at verse 4 of chapter 4, it says, many who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. 5,000 people got saved. How awesome is that, right? Then you go down to verses 5 through 10, and it's, it says the council asked them by what power or by what by what name have you done this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, you guys are judging us for doing something good. You're mad about the fact that this man has been lame for 40 years, and now he's getting up, and he's walking, and he's praising God. You're mad about that? That's your problem? That's your issue? Peter could have just said, I'm going to punch you in the nose in Jesus' name, right? He could have said that. 
But then Peter then sternly alleges, and he says that they are the ones who have crucified the one in whose name they speak. And it's because of Jesus that this man stands whole. And Peter declares in verse 11 that he's the chief cornerstone that you have rejected. And then verse 13, when the council saw their boldness, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained. And they marveled and realized that they had been with Jesus. The council has to decide what they're going to do with the disciples uh, because they can't deny the miracle that's taken place. They don't want to cause an uproar. So in verse 17, this is what they threaten them with. You are not to speak to any man in this name. And then verse 18, they again commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. Key verses, if you're in your Bible, look at verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Verses 23 through 27, they prayed and asked God to get those guys to take care of those Sadducees. No, they prayed for more boldness to preach and teach. Chapter 5, great fear comes on the church because... Ananias and Sapphira have just dropped dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. So after they drop dead, great fear comes among the believers. And verse 12, because the apostles were tough-skinned and were willing to turn the other cheek in the face of persecution, they continued going out, preaching the word, healing, and delivering in Jesus' name. Signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, and multitudes of people brought the sick, the demon-possessed before the apostles, and they were all healed. Verse 17, the high priests and the Sadducees get wind of this again, see what's going on. They become indignant. What do they do? They nab the apostles and imprison them again. But something really cool happens in verse 19. An angel breaks them out. Verse 20, the angel says to them, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, and they did just that. Then verse 21, back at the ranch, the high priest wants the apostles brought out of their prison cell, but when the officers go to bring them before the council, they have vanished with the doors locked. In verse 25, someone comes and tells the chief priest, hey, the guys that you put in prison They are standing in front of the temple, teaching the people. Verse 26, the captain and his officers very nicely go and get the apostles because they're afraid of being stoned. They bring them back before the council, and they say, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Look what you have done. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's, referring to Jesus, blood on us. Verse 29, another key verse. Peter and the apostles said, 
we ought to obey God rather than men. They then accused the council of murdering Jesus. And in verses 33 through 39, Gamaliel speaks and basically says, if this movement is of men, it's going to come to nothing. But if it is God, there is nothing you can do to stop it. Let them go. Verse 40, the council agrees to let them go, but not before they beat them and command them again that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. Verses 41 through 42 says they departed from the presence of the council, not speaking bad names or words against the council or, or gathering a mob to go up against the council. But it says they went rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching as the Christ. Chapter 6, the church continues to grow in the face of persecution. And it is in this chapter where we are introduced to Stephen, a man who is full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He's doing wonders and signs among the people. He's not hurting anybody. He's not doing anything um, to harm anyone else, what he's doing is he's bringing hope and life. Guess who gets upset? The religious leaders. So they stir up the people and the elders, and then they bring him before the council, and they bring false witnesses to lie against him. But Stephen's face is not full of anger or any vengeance. What does his face look like? Like an angel. He has the face of an angel in the midst of being falsely accused. And then it, if you look at verses 56 through 60, because he is full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried, the council with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He didn't say, Lord, I want you to avenge my death. I want you to pay back these men for what they are doing to me and for what they've been doing to your people. He didn't say that. It says he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Someone else said something similar, didn't he? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Great persecution came against the church after the, the death of Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church. And you know what? Those believers and disciples spread. They spread. And you know where they went? Do you guys remember back in, in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus said, go into Jerusalem and wait and receive the promise of the Holy Spirit and then go into Judea and Samaria and the other parts of the world. And that's exactly what they did. 
they scattered and went to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Throughout the book of Acts and throughout church history, to today, persecution has accompanied true followers of Jesus Christ. And when you read of the accounts of those persecuted then and those today, none of them sought revenge. They prayed and they pray for their persecutors. If you read of the stories of our brothers and sisters that are persecuted today, that's exactly what they'll say to you and me. This is how I want you to pray. Pray for us that will stay faithful. Pray for those who persecute us. They don't pray vengeance. These believers then and these believers today that are experiencing persecution were tough-skinned, yet turned the other cheek in the face of persecution. Why? Why would they do that? Because they were gladly willing to suffer and to die for the one who died for them. And every time a believer chooses to do that, Jesus is glorified and the gospel is spread. I'm going to close with this. In Revelation chapter 2, which we're studying Revelation on Tuesday night. I mean Thursday night, sorry. <laughs> Tuesday night's another Bible study. <laughs> Thursday night. And um, we're looking at the seven churches in Asia Minor. And the one I'm referring to is the second church in chapter 2, the church of Smyrna. And it is referred to as the persecuted church. The church during that time period, AD 100 to 312, experienced 10 waves of persecution under 10 different emperors. And during this time in the church of Smyrna, it is Marcus Aurelius who is reigning. And the apostle John trained and placed in leadership over that church a man by the name of Polycarp. And in that region, in that area, panthe pantheism and paganism, as well as Caesar worship, ruled that region. And prominent citizens, such as Polycarp, were to attend celebrations honoring the reigning emperor by taking a pinch of incense and placing it on the altar and declaring Caesar as Lord. Polycarp refused. And the acceptable punishment for someone who refused was to be burned alive at the stake. That's what they do. They take him, tie him to the stake, and the governor gives them a chance and says, if you proclaim Caesar as Lord, we won't light this fire. Okay, I'm paraphrasing, right? This is Polycarp's response, and I quote, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. 
How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? They light the fire and the flames <laughs> begin to burn, but it seems like he's kind of taking a long time to die. So one of the soldiers takes his spear and jabs him in the shoulder. And so he begins to bleed, and as those drops of blood hit the flames of fire, it extinguishes them. And then the governor says, hey, you've got another chance. Declare that Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp refuses again, and they light the flames again. And this is what he says. You threaten fire that burns for an hour and is over. But the judgment on the ungodly is forever. Father, I bless you that you have deemed me worthy of this day and hour, that I might take a portion of the martyrs in the cup of Christ. Among these may I today be welcome before thy face as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. And the flames consumed him, and he died. I'm going to ask you again, as I ask myself, do you truly want to be a disciple of Christ? Do you? Do I? Because if we do, if we really do, you guys, we are going to have to choose to live in accordance with what he says. Jesus said, I tell you. It's not an eye for an eye. It's not a tooth for a tooth. If someone slaps you, give them your other cheek. Don't worry about avenging. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll repay. I'll take care of it. I am the righteous judge. You and I need to be so grateful that this morning you and I are saved and will not experience the vengeance of God on our own life. Amen? But there's no way, like I said, for me personally, there's no way I cannot want to avenge or have revenge when something is done wrong. The only way I can do that through the power of the Holy Spirit within me. And you guys, it's not a thing of pride to have this sense of justice when we want to avenge or to see our enemy or our enemies get their due. It's not a sign of valor if we don't turn the other cheek and seek to punish. It's not Jesus' way. And if we say that we want to be a disciple, it should not be our way either. Amen? Today, in our post-Christian nation, in some places, we're not allowed to wear shirts that portray Jesus. And in some schools, our kids aren't allowed to bring their Bibles and have them out openly. And even in some workplaces, you can't even display verses. You don't even see John 3.16 anymore at the football games. Coaches are fired for praying on the football field after a game. 
We face the threat of job losses if we claim Christ. You can be sued for standing up for biblical principles. They've taken down the Ten Commandments off of our public buildings. We are not allowed to speak in the name of Jesus in the public square. And we're not allowed to proclaim the life-giving truth if it is in opposition to what our culture says should be. These are the days that we are living in. And persecution is going to increase. Are you ready for it? Are you going to handle it? Am I going to handle it the way that Jesus says for us to? To truly be a disciple of Jesus, we must resist the urge to overcome evil with evil. But we must choose to overcome evil with good. And as persecution continues to increase, we need to grow a tough skin. And don't allow the arrows of the enemy to penetrate to us from those who will come against us because of our faith. Turn the other cheek in the face of persecution. And through that, the gospel will be proclaimed. And you and I will be living proof that Jesus can make a difference in another person's life. Let's choose to remember that because of him dying for you and me and the fact that he freed us, we're not going to experience his vengeance. We're not going to experience his wrath. We've been given a free gift because of his death. It's called grace. And we are called to be people of grace and love and not vengeance. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.